0: I'm going to ask you to turn to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. We're going to be looking at the entire chapter, verses 1 through 11. Let me read this, and then we'll, we'll take a closer look at the text. Jonah 4, 1 through 11. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east of the city, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Pretty incredible verse to end the book with, isn't it? Before we finish our study on Jonah this morning, I'd I'd like to get you all caught up with with the big picture that's being portrayed here. Jonah, a prophet of God, a man used by God to speak his truth to, to the world, is sent behind enemy lines, sent to Nineveh, and he's sent there to prophesy. Jonah knows that the Ninevites are Assyrians. That hasn't escaped his notice. He gets it. They're one of Israel's most dangerous enemies, and though Assyria is not what they once were, they have history with Israel. Uh, they have a background. You ever, you ever have history with somebody that maybe is not so pleasant? Uh, have you ever had to uh, plan on meeting with that person or those people, and, and you know the apprehension that comes? You've got You've got things that have happened between you, there's been tension. Well, this is that on a grand scale. So Jonah runs the other way. But even though he runs the other way, even though he doesn't do what God tells him to do, Jonah receives grace. Now, we should see should should have been seeing God's grace right from the first verse. Jonah is a prophet by the grace of God. He's been appointed. He hasn't earned it. God made Jonah a prophet because God is God, not because Jonah is qualified, not because he passed some test, but because God ordained Jonah to be a prophet. We saw God's grace in Nineveh very early on in the book as well. He was sending Jonah to that city to pronounce judgment. The city's going to fall in 40 days. Now, that doesn't sound much like grace, but uh, when we realize that God is actually giving Nineveh a chance to repent, we understand it it's an act of grace in sending Jonah there. You know, and if you stop to think about it, it's kind of the way we receive the Lord. If you're here today and you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, uh, that came to you. The Word of God came to you and, and you responded to it. And that Word of God coming to you was a, a gift of grace. Repentance comes by God's amazing, amazing grace. So we saw grace on the boat, didn't we? We saw grace given to the sailors. We saw grace given to Jonah, who had run away, um, but was rescued by, from drowning by this great fish. And that fish, when when Jonah thanked God for saving him, uh, brought Jonah to dry land, another act of grace. Jonah then walked at least 400 miles, maybe more, uh, to Nineveh and gave them the message that God God a designed for them. People of, of Nineveh heard the message and they bowed down and they worshipped God. Jonah and the message that he brought was an expression of God's grace. And the Assyrians learned a valuable lesson about God's grace. It wasn't going to stick. Three generations later, 130 years later, uh, Nineveh would fall at the end of a very large battle. So a couple generations after this generation, uh, they had slipped back into doing what they always done. So we're going to see in today's passage, Jonah already knew that God was a God of grace and mercy. That that stuck with him. So Jonah didn't have to learn the lesson about grace, uh, but what Jonah did have to learn was that God is sovereign. Now, we talk a lot about God's sovereignty, um, but what, what, what does that mean? What is the sovereignty of God? Listen carefully. It means that God Well, I mean, we just heard it in the catechism, didn't we? I love the way God arranges these things. It means that God has authority over all things. It means that nothing that happens, no one that ever was created, no event in history happens outside of God's purview. Now, not only is God sovereign over all creation, but this one's going to take a little bit of thought. God is sovereign over time as well. So you might have to chew on that one for a little bit, and uh, I mean, it's kind of beyond our comprehension, but that's what we hear. Isaiah tells us in Isaiah, his book, Isaiah 46, 8 through 10, he says to, uh, God says to his people, remember this and stand firm, recall it to mind, you transgressors, remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. So God is sovereign over everything. Now, there are some mysteries surrounding God. We're not, in particular, surrounding his sovereignty. We're not going to understand all that. Uh, We we can't understand all of it. But regardless of whether we understand it or not, we have to accept in faith that God is sovereign merely because his word says he is. Now, we have the, the verse from Isaiah, but let's get a little bit more specific. When Peter and John are arrested in Jerusalem, uh, for preaching the gospel, and they go before the council, and the council listens to them and lets them go with a stern warning. Um, here's how they respond, Acts four twenty three. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, all of creation. Peter and John declare... God's sovereignty over everything he made and he made everything. So we see it again in First Timothy where Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 verse 14 to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time he who is the blessed and only sovereign the king of kings and the lord of lords. So, so we see God's grace we see God's sovereignty in the scriptures, but both attributes are really put on display in Jonah. We see them both attributes over and over again. And they're, they're there to a, a surprising degree, maybe more so than most people think. As a matter of fact, Jonah's whole story, the entire book of Jonah, is about it. It's not about Jonah, it's not about a big fish it's not about Nineveh. Jonah's story is a lesson in the sovereignty and grace of God. Let me say that again. Jonah's story is a lesson in the sovereignty and grace of God. That's our premise for the morning, and we're going to walk through that. Now, we've already seen God's grace poured out on an entire region inhabited by pagan people, populated with people that have done absolutely nothing to receive God's grace. Now we're going to see God's grace poured out on an angry man. Matter of fact, he's a very angry man. And he's an angry man who misses the point. He misses the point of God's sovereignty and grace. He kind of gets the grace. He's not getting the sovereignty thing. Then we're going to see why it's important for us to embrace both God's sovereignty and his grace to its fullest extent with our entire heart. So our sermon today is the Angry Prophet, uh, part four. Uh, our passage, chapter 4, can be divided into two proclamations, one from Jonah, the other one from God. We will see Jonah's complaint in verses 1 through 9. We'll see God's compassion in verses 10 and 11. And that's going to be interesting as we get to that, that, that uh, section of the chapter. So let's look at Jonah's complaint. It begins here in verse 1, comes uh, right after chapter 3, verse 10. Now, let me remind you how chapter 3, verse 10, ended uh, it was when God saw that they, the Ninevites, did, they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So, Jonah's prophecy was successful. Jonah accomplished what he was sent to Nineveh to do. The people repented. Jonah was used in an incredible way. He had a firsthand witness to perhaps the biggest revival in the Bible, maybe the biggest revival ever, um, certainly in the Old Testament. Uh, so, how does Jonah react to that? God moves powerfully. Uh, people are being changed. How does Jonah react? 4-1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. It's an amazing turnaround has occurred here. Look at what just happened. In the previous verse, God turned away from his anger. In this verse, Jonah embraces his anger. He gets immersed in it. The author wants us to see this separation that's occurring between Jonah and God. One that's going to continue to grow. Earlier in the book, the Ninevites were called evil. And and they probably were. But here, uh, we need to understand exactly what's happening. The Hebrew word for displeased has a connotation of evil that goes along with it. Jonah believes that God's acts were evil. He's not not questioning whether or not they're godly. He's calling them evil. Now, furthermore, uh, the Hebrew phrasing, again, is very strong. It's emphatic. Not only does Jonah think these things are evil, he hates what God has done. Jonah is furious. He is livid with anger. God does something exceedingly good. Jonah sees it as exceedingly bad. He exceedingly hates it. I think the author is very deliberate here. He wants his readers to see that Jonah is being petulant, he's being unappreciative, he's being petty, he's being self-righteous. Now, we can see that fairly easy, that's right there on the surface, but this, is, this would have been a challenge to the Jewish readers of the time. It may be a challenge to some of us. You see, most people, when we look at the Old Testament, see the, the Jews as being flawed, being imperfect they certainly had their problems but they were the good guys and that's how the jews saw themselves they were the good guys and their enemies particularly enemies like egypt uh, enemies like babylon enemies like enemies like assyria well they're the bad guys and they are the bad guys they're the ones that god is going to smite i love that word don't you want to see god smite the people you don't like i don't know what it looks like but it can't be pretty So they want to see God smite those guys. So those that have that mindset will struggle when God blesses the bad guys. That just doesn't compute real well. So Jonah certainly struggles with this issue. And you know what? We need to recognize this because Jonah's a prophet. He's got a a close relationship with God. God speaks to Jonah directly, and he's upset over this. Look at Jonah's complaint. We we get his complaint verbatim in verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. I knew you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now, Jonah, we got to catch this. Jonah explains to God why he's angry. Okay? Now, what do we know about anger in the Bible? We know that God has righteous anger. God has righteous wrath. But what does Jesus say about our anger? When we get angry at a brother, what are we doing to him? We murder him. We smite him. Okay? Right there in the Beatitudes. So Jonah's angry over all of this. And so we need to understand exactly what's happening. He's upset with God. And and, and he wants to explain why he's angry. Have you ever been angry at somebody and told them why you were angry? Does it ever work? Do they ever go, oh, I didn't know. I'm sorry. You're so wise. I'm glad you explained that to me. Now everything's just fine for us. Yeah, it's fine. Okay? That's what Jonah's doing. He's not supposed to be angry, yet he's telling God why he's angry. And oddly enough, he does it by quoting scripture. I mean, you've got to see the irony in here. Jonah's quote is right out of Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. And there are words that God says of himself. So Jonah is finding fault with God and God's uttered truth about himself. Jonah is questioning God's compassion. Jonah's hatred for the Ninevites has led him to feel superior to the Ninevites. And now that's bad enough. But Jonah feels superior to God as well. Isn't that what's happening here? Jonah's taken self-righteousness to a whole new level here. He's claiming to judge the actions of God. Evaluating God. See, Jonah thought he knew God. Thought he had God all figured out thought he had it all tied up in a nice bow and a neat package that was easy for him to understand and now God has done something that is totally within the character and nature of God the way God describes himself but it's not in character with who Jonah says God is you got to see that Jonah is placing himself high above God I'll judge you you won't judge me now do you find that starling Do you have some concern for Jonah's welfare? Perhaps concern for Jonah's eternal welfare at this point? Let me ask you this. What what would you do in this situation? What would you do? What would you do if God said or did something that just doesn't conform to your idea of who God is? What do we do with that? That's a question I've been asking myself ever since I started prepping for this series about three months ago. Would, would I change my thinking about God or would I expect him to change to accommodate me? Huh. Would I expect God to conform to my idea of who he was? Isn't that exactly what happens when we read Scripture that just doesn't seem to fit into our concept of who God is or what the Scriptures say. I've said it before. We have to decide whether we're not, we're going to let the Scripture change us or we're going to try and change the Scripture. Isn't that Jonah's struggle? I mean, he just repeated God's words back to him. And Jonah is upset over God doing exactly what God said he would do. He's so upset that he says, Oh, oh now, Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Now, Jonah echoes Elijah's words out of 1 Kings 19.4. If you go back to that passage, you'll see that Jonah just had a major, uh, Elijah just had a major victory over the prophets of Baal, 400 of them. Fire came down out of the sky and eliminated all the prophets. Elijah's the last one standing, And, and now he's on the run because Jezebel, a single woman, threatens him. Elijah doesn't understand what's going on around him. He doesn't understand how God can be so spectacular in defeating the prophets of Baal, but can't seem to handle Jezebel. Jonah's in the same spot. He doesn't understand how God can call Israel, his chosen people, then shed his grace on their enemies. It's the kind of world that God's made. Jonah wants no part of it. He tells God, just kill me and get this over with. You see the arrogance of Jonah's position? Dude, now that he's evaluating God, he's evaluating the work of God, he's passing judgment on God. i got to tell you, if I was there standing next to Jonah, I'd be doing this right now. i I better get out of here because hellfire is going to come down at any moment and consume this guy and burn him to a cinder. I wouldn't want to be anywhere near him. But you know what? That's my idea of how God should function in this situation. And I have to be careful not to judge God's actions as well. He doesn't always conform to my idea or our ideas about him. And as proof, look what God does in response to Jonah. Verse 4, and the Lord said, I don't want to put the right emphasis on this. The Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Let me give you the Kavakis paraphrase here. It's not a rebuke. It, 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 it's not a rebuke as much as a request for Jonah to just pause and consider his actions carefully. God says to Jonah, do you think it's a good idea for you to be this angry at me? You know who I am? It's a compassionate response, filled with mercy. God doesn't return Jonah's anger for anger, and in that we see a scriptural principle. He shows Jonah grace just as he did for the Ninevites. Jonah gets the same grace the Ninevites get. But there's a touch of irony here. God uses a Hebrew word hara uh, for anger. Hara means hot. Hot. And for those of you that read ahead, you know what's coming. God is saying literally, do you think it's a good idea to be so hot about this? Would you like me to show you what hot is? In verse 5, Jonah's done talking he's just had it he marches out of town he finds a spot overlooking the city where he can watch over Nineveh perhaps he's there to see if God changes his mind perhaps he's there to see if this repentance that the Ninevites have expressed can make some sense to him that he can figure out what's going on and as Jonah sits there he's in a hot dry climate temperatures in that region can reach 110 115 120 uh, degrees in the middle of the day so he makes a shelter and he sits down and in verse 6 we see now the lord god appointed a plant and made it come up over jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort did you hear that God gave him a plant because he was uncomfortable and wanted to deliver him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Now, watch what the author does here. He he uses both names for God. We talked about that last week. There's Yahweh and Elohim. Uh, Jonah's about to have an encounter with the God of Israel. But he's also the God of all people, including the Ninevites. And what does God do with Jonah's insubordination? He blesses them. He blesses Jonah. He comforts Jonah. He comforts his rebellious child. He sends a plant to give Jonah shade. Oh, there's, a, there's just a ton of teaching in here. We can meditate on this and, and I'm sure come up with more than what I've got. But the first thing we see is God's sovereignty again. He causes this plant to grow right where it's needed at exactly the time that it's needed, and it's just as big as God needs it to be. It's huge enough to give Jonah shade. It's a beautiful, incredible expression of God's grace. And Jonah knows it. He's glad to have the plant. Notice something about Jonah. He's glad to receive God's blessing, but he's not happy when God blesses those he opposes. That makes him mad. Jonah likes to receive God's blessing, but he wants God to withhold his blessing on those he disagrees with. Jonah's penchant for self-righteousness is just glowing like an ember here. So think about this. So we see Jonah's self-righteous. We see God's grace in delivering the plant. uh, But think about this. Why did Jonah need shade? Didn't he build a a shelter? He built a shelter. Apparently, the shelter that Jonah made wasn't really suitable for this situation. Now, think about that for a moment. Jonah was unable to help himself avoid the heat. So God stepped in and helped him. Jonah, despite his faults, receives God's grace and gets delivered from the heat. But although uh, Jonah received God's grace, he's not beyond God's chastisement. He's still one of God's children, but God has chastened him. He's a prophet. He's one of God's chosen people, and he still has lessons to learn. So in verse 7, we see, but when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. As fast as the plant appeared, the plant disappears. Both of those happen by the hand of God. Jonah is still learning his lesson concerning the sovereignty of God. he had been seeing it all along. The Lord appointed, that means provided, the fish in chapter 1, verse 7. The Lord provided the, the plant in chapter 4, verse 6. The Lord provided the worm in verse 7. And in verse 8, we're going to see that the Lord provides the wind that's coming as well. Joan is also learning that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. So there's a bunch of lessons in there. But there's more coming. Look what happens in verse 8. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. Jonah thought he was hot with anger before. Now God literally heats him up. This wind that, that came in is known as a shiraco. It's an extremely hot, extremely dry, extremely dangerous wind. The temperature when a shiraco would come in, even if it came in in the middle of the night, could go up 20 or 30 degrees in, in a matter of minutes. Yeah, Jonah was in a life-threatening environment. Whatever shelter Jonah built when he first got there is, is not sturdy enough to handle this wind and this heat. And to top it off, it says the sun beat down. The, the word is nakah. The sun attacked Jonah's head. Jonah's under siege. He's in trouble. And the only suitable shelter available to Jonah is where? It's in Nineveh. He's looking over the city where there's shelter. So God's, God's revealing irony to, to, to Jonah. Jonah. He could just walk into the city and probably be okay. But Jonah hasn't learned his lesson yet. He tells God to let him die. He would rather be dead than to go into Nineveh. He'd rather be dead than see God deliver his enemies. He would rather be dead than be the kind of prophet that God has called him to be. He would rather be dead than to submit himself to the Father. Jonah is helpless. Jonah is hopeless. At least that's how Jonah felt. It's not true. We're going to see that it's not true, that he's not helpless and hopeless, but that's how he feels. He's totally frustrated with his life. In his eyes, God has questioned his right to be angry and then turned around and proven that he has no right to be angry. Joseph, jonah's not getting the lessons that god's trying to teach him about sovereignty and grace he doesn't understand them and what's even worse is he doesn't even want to understand them. he doesn't have a desire to understand them. so he says again just let me die just kill me and get this over with now god responds to that second request the same way he did the first one with another question god said to jonah do you do well to be angry for this plant? God's being gentle here. He's, he's trying to teach Jonah, trying to highlight Jonah's inconsistencies with Jonah is not seeing at all. Jonah's angry at God for showing mercy to the Ninevites and thought that God should withhold mer- mercy from them, but Jonah gets mad when God withholds mercy from him. So God says to Jonah, do you you feel that you have a right to be angry over this plant? It's not really a question. Any mature man of God would understand the root of the question was, do you have a right to be angry at me? That's what God's asking Jonah, does he have a right to be angry at God? You know what? This. This. This is Jonah's moment. This is where we see Jonah's heart. It's where he shows himself. Either he's going to see the error of his ways and recognize that he's accusing God of being unfair, that he's accusing God of blessing the Ninevites and not blessing him enough, or he's going to see his own blindness and repent. And confess you're going to see what's going on around him and realize that he's the one that's wrong that his anger is misappropriated apparently jonah still has a lot of learning to do because how does he respond it's in in, uh, the second half of verse nine yes i do well to be angry angry enough to die Jonah maintains that he's got every right to be angry. doesn't want to live in a world where, where God sheds his grace on whomever he chooses to shed his grace upon. It seems he doesn't want to live unless he receives the grace that he feels he deserves. Huh. That's Jonah's complaint. That's Jonah's self-condemnation. That's Jonah's self-judgment. Now we hear God's compassion, but it comes kind of an odd way. Our second proclamation, it starts in verse 10. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. God's been tender with Jonah up to this point, but now there's an edge. He becomes more forceful. The you here is an emphatic you, almost accusatory. God is demanding that Jonah listen. The time for Jonah to respond, the time for Jonah to speak is over. Now Jonah is sitting in God's classroom. He's going to school. Jonah's received grace. God gave him the plant. What's more, God gave it to him supernaturally. God put his grace and sovereignty on display in that plant. But when God showed, and and Jonah, Jonah appreciated that. Oh, yes, thank you, Lord, thank you, you gave me this. But when God showed Jonah just how sovereign he was by taking away the plant as fast as he gave it, Jonah got upset. Jonah felt that he had a right to the plant, as if it were his plant. And now Jonah feels sorry for the plant. He's sorry for himself, of course, but he's sorry that he lost the plant. God was really driving a point home with Jonah. He's saying saying to Jonah, who are you to question God? Paul says something very similar in the book of Romans. But that's the question before Jonah. Who are you to question God? Jonah's anger reveals a lack of understanding. A lack of understanding of who God is. Furthermore, Jonah's anger reveals a lack of trust in God. Now, Jonah's in his position where he stakes his life on a plant. One that existed for one day. One that was a gift of grace, a gift of mercy, a gift that belonged to God. And Jonah had no right, he had no claim to anything regarding the plant. He didn't do anything to earn it. He He wasn't worthy of it. And it was never his to begin with. It belonged to God. And God uses... Jonah's misguided sorrow to show Jonah something about who God is. That happens in verse 11. After he says, you are worried about this plant, God says, and should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and so much, also much cattle? Like I said, it's quite a way to end the book. It's not where I would have wanted to end it. This time, the eye is emphatic. And God draws that contrast between him and Jonah. Jonah's been concerned about his own welfare and about the welfare of his people, the nation of Israel. The Ninevites were a threat to both of them. He felt compassion. Jonah felt compassion for a relatively insignificant part of God's creation. But he had no compassion for God's highest expression of his creativity, people. People. Even the people of Nineveh, there were 120,000 of them. And they're animals too. Jonah had no compassion for the Ninevites. But God does. God has compassion for the Ninevites. Enough compassion to send his prophet Jonah with a word of truth to them and bring them to repentance. So the book kind of leaves us hanging, doesn't it? Maybe, maybe not. Notice there's a question mark at the end. The author wants us to stop and think, not just about Jonah, but about God. And, and as we ponder God and what just happened here, we'll begin to realize that there are lessons for us today. God has demonstrated his sovereignty and his grace throughout the story. Jonah's deeply of the grace when he receives it, but not when the Ninevites do. Jo- Jonah doesn't seem to realize that even as he argues with God, he's receiving grace. I mean, who argues with God and survives that? Notice that Jonah never receives condemnation. Did you notice that? God never condemns Jonah. He does, however, receive chastisement. He does receive correction. Jonah earns condemnation, but he receives grace. Another lesson lesson for us. But he doesn't seem to appreciate the grace. And by the end of the book, it looks like he's getting away with it, doesn't it? I mean, Jonah's been this nasty little child the whole time. And I mean, the worst thing that happens to him is he gets a sunburn. (laughs) What kind of lesson is that for us? It's okay to argue with God. It's okay to be angry at God. Think about about Jonah's story for a moment. Think about the overall story. Jonah keeps receiving grace, but he fails to realize that God is doing amazing supernatural things all around him. The storm, the ship, the sailors get saved. Jonah gets rescued. Nineveh repents. And Jonah, because of his anger, misses the lessons that God wants him to learn. He misses the fact that God is using him in a miraculous way. He misses the amazing transformational power of the living God moving in Jonah's life. Jonah misses, listen, Jonah misses the blessings of God. Don't miss this. Jonah's anger deprives him of God's blessing. He's so focused on his anger, he can't enjoy the blessing of God moving in his life and the life of the Ninevites. Jonah should have died in the ocean, but God saved him for this particular purpose, and now he's mad. Now, that should at least compel us to ask ourselves if our anger, if we have any, is doing the same thing, depriving us of the fullness of God's blessing. Now, we'll talk more on that in just a moment. Here's one more lesson we can learn from Jonah. What was Jonah angry about? What got him so upset? He didn't, he didn't want to see the Ninevites get blessed. He was so angry about that, right from the beginning, he defied God, and that separation occurred. He made distance between him and God. Not eternal, but temporal. Jonah said he knew God would do this. And further on in Jonah's story, the more we see, as we look further on in the story, the more we see that it was God's intention to bring the Ninevites to repentance. It was was what he planned on doing and teach Jonah and the Ninevites a lesson about grace and sovereignty. God would display his compassion in what he did with the Ninevites, and at the same time, he would reveal Jonah's lack of compassion, his lack of heart. But although God also shows us that Jonah was angry, Jonah was angry at God just because God was sovereign. He didn't like that. Jonah doesn't like God being sovereign. He didn't like God's plan. So he rebelled against God's will and God's purpose and now he's missing out on God's blessing. And because of Jonah's rejection of God's sovereignty, he's miserable. Listen carefully. He's not lost. He's he's God's prophet. He's one of God's children. But he's miserable. There's still a relationship there. It's not as strong as it was before. I mean, God's still talking to him. What what do we do with a lesson like that? How do we even process that? Here's my suggestion. Ask yourself a couple of questions. Here's the first one. Do I really believe God is sovereign? Do I manufacture exceptions to his sovereignty in my head? Oh, God wasn't sovereign over Hitler. God would never be sovereign over somebody that evil. God wasn't sovereign over what my spouse did to me. He must have been looking the other way. Do I really believe God is sovereign? I said earlier that Jonah's story was a lesson of God's sovereignty and his grace. And I firmly believe that if you call upon Jesus Christ as Lord and your Savior, you have some understanding of grace. I, I, I think all of us uh, struggle to grasp the fullness of his grace. But I think we struggle to grasp the fullness of his grace because we struggle to grasp the fullness of his sovereignty. Yes, yes, I know. The word says he's sovereign. We looked at three passages that said that. There were more. But the question remains, do I really believe God is sovereign? I think, I think if Jonah would have paused, he put his anger on hold for just a few moments and asked himself that question, he may have been able to experience the joy and the peace of the Lord. But he wouldn't do that. He may have been able to enjoy that peace that goes beyond understanding just by placing all of his trust and faith in what God did and why he was doing it. But he, he didn't. And God's sovereignty made him angry. Okay. Let me ask you this. What makes you angry? What makes you angry? And i got to confess to you, I'm in the same boat you are in this one. I get angry. Uh, I've been asking myself this question for a few months now. If God is truly sovereign, why do I get angry? Do I really trust him with every aspect of my life? Or do I, like Jonah, get angry? Do I get angry with those who disagree with me? Do I get angry with those who Are different than me do I get angry with those who who I think I'm smarter than do I get angry with those who think they're smarter than me do I get angry with those people who think they're better than me if God is truly sovereign why do I get angry why do I get angry over relationships why do I get angry with my mom, with my dad, with my spouse, with my kids, with my brothers, with my sisters, with the people I spend day-to-day time with, with my boss, my neighbor, people on the other side of the political aisle, people in, in, in at school, people who correct me, people who criticize me, people who look down on me, people who, deliver, who believe differently, People that won't do things the way that I think they need to be done. Why do I get angry with those people? Why do I get angry with people who steal from me? Why do I get angry with people who hurt me, who cheat me, who talk about me? If God is sovereign, why do I fret over what people think about me? Is God's grace sufficient for me or do I want more? Do I get my affirmation from my Father in heaven or do I have to get it from the people around me? Because I'll tell you something, if I've got to get it from the people around me, it's not coming. Why? Because they're all looking for the same affirmation. Let's, let's bring this into today's headlines. Let's make this a bit more contemporary and maybe a bit more difficult. If God is truly sovereign, why do I get angry at immigrants? Why do I get angry at Muslims? At the LBGT community, why am I angry at them? Why am I angry at people who dislike the president? Or if I'm on the other side, why do I get angry at people who like the president? Why do I get angry at abortionists? Why do I get angry at atheists? Why do I get angry at Dallas Cowboys fans? (laughs) Aren't all those people... And all those situations, an opportunity for us to show the grace of God? Aren't they an opportunity for us to share the gospel? They are. And if I believe that he is sovereign, if I really believe that, then God is constantly giving us opportunities to show his grace. You see, that's another lesson we've learned from Jonah. God's sovereignty and God's grace go hand in hand. You can't separate them. We're about to sing a song in which we will sing that the mountains fall down and the seas will roar at the sound of his name. I pray when we get there that you consider your heart and you sing that robustly. Because we believe that, amen, that that the mountains will fall down and the seas will roar at the sound of his name. Amen, we believe that? Come on, guys. All right, thank you, thank you. Do we believe that God can do that, but not transform the person that we're angry at? Do we believe that God can do that and not transform our hearts? Do we believe that God can move mountains and not change the situation that perturbs us so much? You know, God can move mountains. But what he wants to move, brothers and sisters, is our hearts. He shows us that he can move mountains so that we know that he can change our hearts. Let's learn from Jonah. Let's not miss the lessons that he missed. Let's learn them together. Let's take the grace and sovereignty of God out there, beyond the walls. We've got chances to do that coming up all summer long. Let's let's do this. Let's take it into our community. Let's show them that God redeems. Show them that God loves. Show them that God has compassion and is merciful and full of grace. Not just by telling them that that's true, but by showing them. By showing them that God heals hearts and changes them. So, what do we do when we get angry? You know what? It's almost unavoidable. I mean, we live in a real world, we live in a fallen world. We're going to get angry. We can't stop it. We don't even know that we're angry until we're angry. So you can't go through the day and I'm not going to get angry today because somebody will come up and slap you in your face. you get angry. What do you do when you're angry? I mean, Paul tells us in Ephesians, be angry, yet do not sin. And I think a lot of people don't understand. There's a comma at the end of that phrase. It says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. So what we don't do is we don't hold on to the anger. We don't hold on to the bitterness. We don't stroke it. We don't nurture it. We don't make it larger and larger by going over and over things in our head, over and over again. What do we do when we get angry? How do we respond? We do what Jonah shows absolutely no evidence of doing over the Ninevites. We repent. It's the tool that God's given us to handle those sins that we, that we do. Repentance. We repent. We realize that our anger is not the problem of the person or the circumstance that we're angry at. It's not their burden, it's ours. We confess that a sovereign God has placed this person or this situation in our lives for a reason. He wants to teach us something. He wants to show us something. He wants to bring us closer to him. And we ask God to teach us. We repent. We ask God to teach us. We ask the Holy Spirit to lead us. And we thank God that we don't have to bear that anger for another moment longer. But we can live in His joy. We can experience His peace. And we leave that person or that situation in the hands of the sovereign God that placed them there. So if we learn anything from Jonah, let's learn this. How do we respond to our own anger? We repent. We don't hold on to it. We repent. We're about to start a study in two weeks in Second Corinthians, Paul's second letter to that church, where Paul's main message is that he's had to learn to be content even when things go against him. It's an incredible book. Let's be like Paul. Let's receive all the blessings that God has for us as his people and then return anger that we receive with compassion and love and mercy amen let's pray father we thank you for the lesson of Jonah or we don't know how things turned out for Jonah, uh, but we know the lesson we can learn so we pray father that we would see your compassion see your grace see your sovereignty father understand that everything that is in our lives father is for our good and for your glory it might not always be pleasant might not always be the best day that we've had, but we know where we're headed and how we're going to get there by the grace of Jesus Christ and by the sacrifice he made on the cross. So give us a vision for that. Give us a vision for eternity, Father, that we might not get hung up in the worldly matters now. Father, we might not let them impact our peace and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.